0: Finding the middle ground becomes very, very difficult.
1: Our court system is such a blunt one for dealing with these problems.
0: One doesn't need to invoke alienation to explain why a child is now struggling to be in a relationship with a parent. High conflict is enough. Alex
2: Verdon, QC, is head of chambers at 4PB in London.
1: I am also a Deputy High Court judge, and I specialise in my um, barrister work in private law high-conflict cases, and so therefore I have a large experience in so-called alienation and high-conflict cases.
2: Mark Borelowitz is a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist at the Royal Free Hospital in London, and is frequently instructed as an expert witness in high-conflict cases.
0: I started getting involved in family work um, many years ago. I'm very much informed by the long-standing research finding in my field that in the Western world, absent, absent pestilence, war and famine, the biggest environmental risk factor for children's well-being is exposure to chronic conflict between their parents. And that informs me every day uh, in my work and sometimes even in my personal life. And if I could do one thing as a doctor, I would reduce uh, family conflict worldwide, because that would make such a difference to children.
2: Thank you, Beth. I think we, we hear more and more about the, of this phrase, parental alienation. And I think there's even controversy as to whether the phrase has true meaning, whether it represents a syndrome, whether it's a useful descriptive. What 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 do the two of you
1: think? I think it's an overused term and it's often used in the wrong situation and I don't really like it and whenever I meet a client where there's even a hint of alienation in the papers or they mention it in the first meeting I'll try to steer them off it but in a sympathetic way by saying to them that I'm interested in the evidential basis for the complaint I'm interested in the patterns of behavior because then I can give them the best advice possible but that I generally find the label unhelpful, because I think it's 90% of the time misused. And what I try to explain to them is that um, what I'm interested in is if the child's hostility or uh, obstruction to contact or unwillingness to see the other parent is unjustified. That's the first thing I'm looking at. And that's quite a hard forensic analysis to go through to reach that conclusion. And then the next thing I look at is whether that uh, obstruction of uh, opposition is caused by a parent. I mean, it, it often isn't. It's often caused by other things. So then I look to see whether it's caused by a parent. And then I look to see whether it's caused in a malevolent way. So it's obviously a very complicated analysis, um, but I normally start off by steering them away from it because unfortunately it's used as a weapon by many of our clients for reasons which one can completely understand. It's a very uh, emotive term and many people feel very strongly about it, but it doesn't always help.
2: If, if it's misused in 90% of cases, does that mean that there is a small percentage where, where it perhaps is a genuine factor?
1: For sure, and, and we've all done them and we've seen how they play out and we know the huge danger from them. The, the difficulty is identifying that 10% right at the beginning when you've got limited knowledge and limited information, which is generally the situation. Mark, what do you think of the term?
0: I think the term... May have had some use some years ago. It no longer has any use, and nowadays probably does more harm than good. If I speak as a doctor, sometimes it's treated as a diagnosis without having any of the research underpinning it that leads to a diagnosis. So, with depression or multiple sclerosis or any other diagnosis, we we have criteria. We distinguish between mild, moderate, and severe. A one-off, a chronic, a recurrent. And this is just too loose and open to being defined by anyone the way they please. Rather like Alex, my heart sinks if I encounter someone whose heart is set on proving alienation and trying to add up everything in that way. I worry about any court case where the game is to prove or disprove alienation because those are the most ghastly cases, and the children actually get lost in the middle of those. But people do turn people against one another. We know nations get turned against one another, religious groups get turned against one another, streets get turned against one another, family members get turned against one another. And I have seen within faith groups, including my own. Mothers vilified for having any sexuality at all, being completely cancelled for ever having any kind of mental illness. And I've seen fathers vilified for trying to play a role in their children's lives. So people do turn people against other people. And, you know, alienation is the wrong word for it. I don't know what the right word is. But when I say that I... I don't find the concept useful, it doesn't mean that I don't worry about emotions run high and parents get vilified and cancelled.
1: Mark, do you think it's also sometimes used as an excuse by one parent not to uh, reflect on their own responsibility for a situation?
0: Yes, I think it is used a lot in that way. And the, the painful thing about this is one as one parent saying, it's all about alienation and the other parents saying, no, it's all about your conduct and finding the middle ground then becomes very, very difficult. And we, as we all know, in human life, there's mostly middle ground and not so many extremes.
3: The difficulty um, for us lawyers, Mark, is trying to weed out what issue it is at an early stage because... Yeah. Most of the time we're, we're waiting for fact-finding and that could be a year or 18 months or possibly longer down the line. How do we as lawyers try and try and work out what's going on?
0: I don't have an answer to that. And in the absence of fact-finding, actually our hands are tied because the child and adolescent mental health services can't cope with conflicting allegations. And if one of the allegations, if, if people start to use la- the language of abuse then all the helping services are really completely stymied. They don't know who to believe and they worry about getting themselves into trouble and they worry about reinforcing a narrative. And so they're desperate for a fact finding. You know, you as lawyers have similar obligations about, you know, the the paramountcy of the welfare of the child. And I think it is very, very difficult when the parties are set on, you know, are asking the professionals to prove a particular argument, either that that one parent is not fit or that the other parent is alienating. This is, it's, it's a nightmare.
3: the mental um, health services wait for the result of fact-finding then?
0: Mental health services, child adolescent mental health services, you know, sadly, child adolescent mental health services are so hard-pressed at the moment that they devote a lot of time to screening clients out. And warring parents get screened out because the services can't deal with it. And, you know, someone of my experience finds it very difficult with warring parents unrefereed. And we we don't have the power to referee them. So it, 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 once this starts, a lot of things go wrong, including it being very hard for the children to get help.
3: Alex, can I ask the same question to you? What do you say us lawyers need to do at the start when um, clients come in? Do we need to try and identify whether it's truly a case of alienation or, or high conflict or, or do we run the case the same regardless of what we think may be the truth of the issue?
1: well the two types of cases overlap obviously but they're not always the same i mean in my experience by the time a case comes to me i'd say sadly it's always high conflict because of how the system filters down and so all the cases i see really are high conflict and of those i would guess 20% of them are cases where alienation is alleged so that's my you know when i start that's what i'm i'm dealing with and All the strategies which good lawyers, and I'm privileged to work with good lawyers nearly all of the time, which good lawyers use to try and explore other resolutions have always been done, Anita. So yes, I can come to the table and make some suggestion about mediation or arbitration or counselling or seeing Mark or one of his colleagues. But that's always been done before. And certainly from a QC's point of view, you know, sometimes they're coming to me to go to battle. And I use that term deliberately. And if I start speaking the language of conciliation, they kind of think, well, hang on a minute. We've tried all of that. We're coming to you to go to court and fight and prove alienation. So please don't start talking about having counselling. So that's the difficulty I'm in. And that's an honest assessment of, you know, what a barrister has to do, because generally our role is to go to court and fight a case. I use the word fight deliberately, not sit around the table and resolve it. Although we're all conscious of our duties as family lawyers to try to make it better for the children and the families. So I suppose that's my first instinctive response to that, Anita
2: two terms that have become weaponized and sort of polarized against one another and, and and the worry I suppose is that the the way that that's happened hides the reality of, of the lives that are facing facing children in in these families. so parental alienation being being one that is raised frequently by you know by the the, the, the parent who doesn't have access rights to the child and the other one being, Domestic abuse, coercive control, which is often raised as the reason why that parent shouldn't be have access to the child. I mean, do do you think that there's a a problem with the, the term parental alienation really being used to divert from from domestic abuse and coercive control situations, or are, are the ter- are, are, are the terms all, all weaponized?
0: I'm, I'm trying to th- th- think about Anita's question and 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 how lawyers might address this, high conflict leads to it being less likely that the children will be able to be in a relationship with both parents at the same time. One doesn't need any alienation for the relationship with one parent to become incredibly fragile. And then it can flip and the other relationship become incredibly fragile. So when people come to me, sometimes for reports or sometimes, you know, for advice, I try to explain that one doesn't need to invoke alienation to explain why a child is now struggling to be in a relationship with a parent. High conflict is enough, and we should try and look at the high conflict when it's there and not be focusing on the alienation. You know, maybe lawyers can try and look at that with their clients. I do think when a client comes and starts talking about why the other parent should no longer be seeing the children... Then one's got to think, yes, about coercive control and abuse, but also about an unconscious or deliberate campaign to wash that parent out of the children's lives and to keep an open mind about all those options.
3: Is that um, less often, though, when they're openly declaring that the other parent shouldn't have contact or, or spend time with them? Is it more common to find they're expressing um, that it should be happening, but the other person is, is doing X, Y and Z, which prevents it?
0: Well, you know, the number of people that I see is small. I do see a lot of people who convey that they've reluctantly concluded that it's best that the other parent wasn't around very much anymore. And then some people come... Know, very strongly. Sometimes it's about coercive control. Sometimes it's, a, you know, it's about a previous history of mental health problems. And it's like, you know, Harry and William and, you know, Freddie Flintoff have never, ever talked about their own struggles with depression. Like, it's like the most damning thing in the whole world ever to have had it with a worth mental health problem. And, you know, they're really, really majoring on that and cancelling the other person. And I then sometimes end up feeling like, to them, I'm someone who's declining to see the light that's so obvious to them. And they get frustrated with me and perhaps with yourselves as well.
1: That's
2: very common, isn't it? That if you don't buy into my story, then you're part of the problem. Is that something yeah. you
1: encounter, Alex? Yeah, and we've got to keep our clients' confidence to help them and to keep them as clients. And so, of course, we have to identify with their argument. And our system is quite binary and quite adversarial and inevitably we advocate on behalf of our clients what they're saying but also we've got a job to try and make them see it in the way that the experts would and the judge would so it it, you know what we're exploring in this uh, podcast is how difficult it is in these high conflict cases to give the most rounded professional advice to people who are in such an awful situation. And I keep coming back in my head to is it justified? Is, is the behavior of the child justified? And is the allegation relevant? And if you stick to those two principles, you you can normally steer your way through it, I think, because your clients might make a whole range of allegations of coercive control. Even if they were all true at the time the relationship was existing, are they now really relevant to the relationship with the child? And I think if you apply that test strongly, it's only a minority of cases where it still is relevant. That's my view based on my experience. And I think Again, the minority of cases, the child's behaviour is justified by the child's experience, as opposed to being justified by the other parent's experience, which is slightly different.
3: Can we um, ask you to help us with the legal principles that are relevant in both high conflict cases and cases where there may be an element of alienation?
1: None of this is new to the Court of Appeal, is it? Um, and the most recent formula is the one in Ries parental alienation. And Lord Justice Peter Jackson reviewed all the existing case law going back now, I don't know, 20 years and reconfirmed the Kafka's definition of what alienation was, which we all know, namely when a child's resistance or hostility towards one parent is not justified and is the result of psychological manipulation by the other parent. But then added really importantly, and we often forget this, however, the manipulation does not need to be malicious or even deliberate. And this goes back to what Mark was discussing earlier. He, the the judge said, it's the process that matters, not the motive. Um, and parents often forget that. And from the child's point of view, um, that's, I think, a very important piece of legal guidance to hold on to. So, I mean, that's where I go to now if I'm doing a parental alienation case, the case of Ries, uh, which is still quite a recent one. In relation to high-conflict cases, well, then, again, Anita, there are many, many cases which uh, deal with high-conflict cases, and the Court of Appeal have looked at this Frequently over the years. re is again my go-to case because that summarises all the salient case law and balances on the one hand the fundamental right of any child to have a relationship with the parent and the parent's right to have a relationship with that child which is obviously the starting position which is enshrined in section one of course of the Children Act As the starting assumption, and the obligation on the state to uh, do everything possible to further contact and only to stop it as a a last resort. And I firmly believe those principles are applied up and down the country in all these difficult cases, and for contact only to be terminated in exceptional cases. But balanced against that, ultimately, of course, the welfare of the child is paramount. And if the evidence justifies either termination or suspension of contact or very limited contact in some cases, well, then the law in our uh, system allows for that. And some of our clients really struggle to understand that the court can sanction the stopping of contact. And they say to us all the time, don't they, but I have a right to a relationship with my child. How can the state, how can a judge stop me ever seeing my children again? And I uh, sadly was involved in such a case you know, only a month ago, and it's a very, very hard concept to explain to a parent that it is justified and it's non-appealable in the right case, with the right evidence and the right facts. So um, the legal principles are all set out, Anita, as you know, they're set out very clearly in a whole range of cases now.
2: We're focused on the adults because the adults are the people who become parties to court proceedings. They're the people who come and see us in order to achieve a result. But the way that these cases express themselves is that a child says to people who interrogate them about their wishes and feelings that they don't want to see one of their
0: parents. Alex talked about the legal principles. The the child mental health principles are very clear. Children do better following divorce, do better psychologically following divorce if they have rich and full relationships with both parents. So if they don't have rich and full relationships with both parents, then they've added to their lives a risk factor for mental health problems, which they don't have to have. It's an avoidable risk factor. Secondly, children do worse in marriage and in divorce if they're exposed to conflict between their parents. So ongoing conflict adds a risk factor for children that again is avoidable, and life is hard enough without adding into life some avoidable risk factors. And then, thirdly, and not surprisingly, the greater the conflict between the parents, the harder it is psychologically for the child to stay in a relationship with both parents. And so, this informs my thinking always about the children. And then I get disconcerted when a child behaves as though these very well known risk factors don't matter a jot to them. When one tries to talk about them, one falls on deaf ears, as it were. The child is just not interested in listening. I get very worried about that child. I also get worried about a child who reserves for one parent extraordinarily invective, unpleasant language that seems completely at odds with the way they've been talking to me about their lives for the previous 45 minutes. I also worry about the child who doesn't understand. And of course, many children will not understand what's happened here. And I, uh, you know, a boy who had been at many, many assessments and wasn't seeing his father, I said to him, in the middle of all of this, I've lost, what did your father do? And he said, I think he once shoved me, kind of. And that was it. And he told me, it wasn't because of any therapeutic intervention of mine, in the same conversation, he told me that, He'd he'd been walking down the road and he saw his father at the bus stop and he went up to him and he hugged him. He he couldn't understand why, but he didn't regret doing it. He didn't say a word and then he walked on. But for me, that added up quite well with him saying, once he shoved me, kind of. So this boy had lost the relationship. He couldn't understand why. And when he physically saw his father, he, he mindfully felt the loss. But all of the rest of the time, life's better without a dad, actually. And so I worry so much that a child like that has done what psychotherapists call lost the capacity to think, and then they end up in a kind of mindless situation, not about the totality of their being, but about one key figure in their lives. It's close to impossible therapeutically to address that while the child is young and living with a parent who shares, you know, who reinforces that perspective. But I've encountered a number of adults latterly, who are really, really upset at how they behave towards the non-resident parent. And in one case, the person's filled with regret because that parent died before the child, now adult, could make good. And so they carry a, a, you know, an unbelievably painful burden. And so I, I do worry about the children, and and then I worry about the flip-flopping that I've sometimes seen them do. So they end it with a parent with whom they seem incredibly settled, and they spontaneously go to the other parent, and then they've just exchanged one, one loss for another. I, the, the piece of research, and in a way that's crying out to be done, is to ask adults to come forward, not just to talk about the experience of being removed in the middle of the night, but what are the reflections as 30-, 40-, and 50-year-olds about what happened to them and how they're now living their lives accordingly? As a general principle, my struggle, with the ethics and the practicality, of helping a dependent child develop a different view from the resident parent about any issue. Because we can't have the child... Having one kind of view in the therapist's office, and then being exposed to criticism when they go home for developing that view from a parent from siblings, so it's difficult.
2: So, is it, it, the motivation for the child the, the fear of losing a second parent by by doing something that the the parent disapproves of?
0: It's it's difficult enough to understand people who wish to be understood. When people come along wishing to persuade a professional person, that their mindset is entirely justified by circumstance, and they just want you to write that down and leave them alone, then it's very, very difficult to understand how they are. It's very, very difficult indeed. And when someone says they have no sense of loss whatsoever, and one sits in the room and thinks it's called the countertransference, this seems to be more upsetting for me than it is for the young person experiencing the loss. Then one becomes really quite worried, but we can't push people in on a therapeutic course that they don't sign up for. You know, it's it's wrong. So one tries it a little bit, but if the doors are shut, we 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 have to leave people be. And I, I don't see ethically how we can do anything different from that. I I think the job is prevention to try to work with people before the divorce got so acrimonious. But that's a speculative idea. But you know, that old joke, how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, the number of therapists doesn't matter. The thing is that the light bulb has to really want to change. It's an episode. It's an unfunny joke. One can't and shouldn't be trying to get people to change if they're not signing up for it. And this applies to children as much as adults.
1: The more we talk about this fascinating conversation, the more one realises that our system, our court system, not not our mental health system, but our court system is such a blunt one for dealing with these problems, however good the intention is. And we all know the legal principles, we all know the methodology And even if it works really well and all the principles are applied properly and put into practice, it still is blunt and it's still not good enough. So just picking up on the point mentioned earlier about fact-finding hearings, which I agree is the only way, (laughs) the only route we can offer people, because we all need to know what the judge makes of it. In most of the cases I deal with after fact-finding, one person says, I don't accept the findings. You're almost back to square one. Of course it's easy for the court because the court says, no, this is now the uh, truth <laughs> and there's no divergence from it. but you know generally half the clients are unhappy with the findings and continue their lives in the way they did and it's a miscarriage of justice then that you're dealing with.
0: I ask myself, what's in it you know, when a client is saying, "Oh, I'd love them to see the other parent, I just can't get them to do it I, 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 I. What's in it for them to say, oh, yes, thanks for that piece of advice. That should work, actually. No, there's nothing in it for them. It it destroys the whole argument that they came with, unless it's going to lead to some kind of reconciliation, apology, full-on healing. But if it's just a sort of deconstruction of what really matters to them without any consequent healing, frankly, it's not in their psychological interest, really, to go down that route.
1: Yeah. And even if there was a chance of that right at the beginning of the process, there's no chance after two years of litigation when you filed five statements and your position has become more and more entrenched and you're really dug into it by then. From what I've seen, by then, it's too late.
0: Although, Alex, I have seen, you know, I saw a man recently after years, except that his conduct wasn't in the interest of the children and it was profoundly moving and I, I hope it leads to some kind of healing. It's early days, residence was transferred and um, at least you know, in his witness statements, and I have no reason to doubt his sincerity, he accepted that he needed to run better and, and he needed that she'll need to live with her mother and then rebuild with him. Um, but you know, it's the exception that, you know, that proves the rule. It was very moving and had the potential for healing.
3: Anything that we can do to reduce conflict you would encourage that we are doing. And I think you're saying that fact-finding is necessary, but necessary as swiftly as possible, rather than before years of delay. What else are you telling us are the things that will help this situation?
0: Can I come back to fact-finding? Fact-finding early on in an ideal world leads to clarity. Fact-finding after four years leads to vindication vindication is not the road to healing vindication is the road to i told you so good night goodbye so fact finding leading to clarity of task and clarity about the stakes for the parties if they don't get that right that's really really welcome is
3: that right alex is that your
1: yeah yeah i completely agree with that and uh Mark's put it very well. The other the other angle, and if you're not going down the court angle is to develop a relationship of trust and confidence with your clients so that they believe you when you say don't go down the court route, try and get some professionals involved in the case who can help you far better than lawyers ever could. And um, I say it in that guarded and careful way, because that's a very difficult thing to do to trust someone else to resolve it in the non-binary way because obviously the court solution is uh, black and white in that sense because if you can get the right expert and that's a massive if there are not enough of them and there are too many of these cases and the, the quality and the standard obviously varies as with every profession but if you can get the right people i've seen really good results
3: Yes, although that that rather depends on the clients having enough money to get in the right people.
1: Yeah, so I, again, that's an assumption I'm making now because it costs a huge amount of money.
3: And what's what's your view for litigants who perhaps have the money to instruct lawyers but aren't looking at the sorts of funds they would need to, to get in the top experts or the right people?
1: Well, Mark would know better than I do. Um, the current situation with CAMS and the state provision, but you know, anecdotally, I, I suspect the situation's worse now than it was pre-lockdown for obvious reasons because there are so many more people needing help with mental health. So, I mean, the if you're not able to pay privately, I think your options are really limited, and there is a huge yeah. waiting list.
0: CAMS ought to see children experiencing the consequences of acrimonious divorce because that is such a big environmental risk factor for their well-being, but they won't because they can't deal with the warring parents. And unlike lawyers, they have both parents in the room rather than one, and they just can't deal with it completely understandably. And, you know, as I with my experience, and I've got one case at the moment, I, I find it very, very difficult. My clinical team finds it very difficult. The child's Residential School finds it very, very difficult. And especially when the parent makes all kinds of allegations, but won't make them to social services, will only make them to us. And so... I think there aren't options within the state system and therapists and private practices have learned to be careful because they don't want to be hired guns and they what well, they particularly don't want to be an accidental hired gun express an opinion without sufficient information.
3: Over to the local authorities then, if it crosses that, that sort of threshold.
1: Yeah, and it it, it often does, but then we yeah. have a different type of problem, don't we, because yeah. although, uh, of course, there are really good social workers uh, yeah. Across local authorities the reality is these sorts of cases although conscious of what mark said about their profound negative emotional impact on children they're not local authority priorities no. and you might get the assessment but you won't get the follow-on work uh, you won't get the social worker visiting no. each of the parties and the children and working through all the recommendations and yeah. seeing you know and working with it for, you won't get that
0: if the children are clean and well-dressed and go to school from one home, then there's, the local authority is going to prioritise other cases. But could I come back to something about decisions um, and judgments? My, the weather forecast on my phone says there's a 40% chance of rain tomorrow. I can't ever say there's a 40% chance that this is an alienation case and a 60% chance that this is a coercive control case. I mean, I wish I could. I can't even say what one does in a personal injury case. On the balance of probabilities, this is the cause. On the balance of probabilities, this is a material contribution. Sometimes I can say I think the discord is a bigger issue than the separate conduct of each parent. There's something about the binariness of alienation where... It simply seems intellectually impossible. I mean, maybe I'm lacking courage to say the percentage likelihood that it's alienation is X. And would I have the courage to put it at a complex level, like 40 percent? No, not trivial, but not a, a game changer either.
3: What would we do with that kind of? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I don't
3: know what, what steps yeah. you would then take.
0: Yeah, but the reality of life is that it's, it's mostly not just one thing. And the courts kind of know that and the clients know that, I think.
3: Yeah.
1: Do you mean it's multiple causes or do you mean the histories are so complicated that you can't identify one reason why it's happened?
0: The pain of the slow, destructive dissolution of a relationship leads to so many consequences and an incident at midnight on a Thursday night might stick in one person's mind and might, you know, for not not insensitive reasons, be almost forgettable to the other person, because they now have such different narratives that they can't square off with one another. And, you know, one of the very difficult things in your situation, even more so than mine, is that the parties Mm -hmm. lose the right to inquire sensitively of the other person, well, like, what was going on there? Occasionally, we can do that in the therapeutic world, if we're really, really lucky. We can't in the legal world.
2: An issue that was raised by Louise Tickle, who's been a guest on this podcast in an earlier edition and who since then has released a dispatches programme on or presented a dispatches programme on, on Channel 4. And she was looking, amongst other things, at situations in which children are forcibly removed from their parents in a high conflict case in order to go and live predominantly with the other parent. It was incredibly emotive contemporaneous footage that she produced. But I I think the the point of the programme really was to say that the decision-making of the family courts takes place in secret and isn't therefore open to public interrogation. I just wonder whether the two of you think that there would be value in the court's decision-making process being open to scrutiny.
1: I watched that programme and I thought it was a very interesting and important programme. But I didn't understand or certainly had no experience of the point that, in fact, judges don't take into account the impact on the children of removal. I didn't understand that at all, because in all the cases I've done, and I've done many, it's always a point which is front and centre of the argument, by the time you get to the point of there's going to be a removal, you generally have a hearing all about, well, what will be the impact of the removal? And we'll have evidence about that from the experts in the case, because it's part of the balancing exercise. And my experience is the judges take very seriously the impact of removal and work on the assumption that it will be very upsetting and put that into the balance. So I'm certainly not persuaded that that factor is not taken into account. I think it's a very obvious factor. I think it's a very serious factor. And I think judges, lawyers, professionals involved are very, very conscious of it. Whether or not the court needs to be more open and transparent so that this particular issue is scrutinised better by the public is a different one. And it links to whether or not family courts should be more open generally.
3: Louise would say, um, and i uh, just putting her point, she would say that how's she to know about all of this unless it, uh, uh, unless it starts to open up and people are coming forward more, more frequently and see the press as a useful body in terms of opening up this scrutiny? She's to say, you know, unless that happens, how's, how's she to know that there's a, um, a case dealing with this and this issue is going to be scrutinised?
1: Well, that links to why doesn't she know about it? Because 90%, I'm very willing to quote random percentages, and I know Mark hasn't been willing to, but 90% of my clients don't want the press reporting their case, even in an anonymized way, even if they have really strong feelings about it, even if they think the judge has got it completely wrong, and they think the professionals have mishandled it. They don't want their case in any way identified. And that's coming from the clients. And that's my experience.
3: Is that your experience, Mark?
0: Yes. One of the things that any children going through the state process hate is the loss of privacy and dignity. And that's even within all the secrecy and confidentiality that we currently have. And so I, let, let me let me talk about removal of the children and then and let me talk about openness in the, in the courts, both things. So. I'm not surprised that some removals turn out to be brutal, because the court is ordering unknown, unnamed people who may have never before done this in their life, and may be wholly unprepared to do it, to go off and do something. So by contrast, if we detain somebody under the Mental Health Act on the children's ward at my hospital on the sixth floor, and then we have to get them down to the lower ground floor next to A&E to get them into an ambulance to take them to an adolescent unit. We plan it unbelievably carefully. We spend hours planning it. We always involve people who've done it before, people who know the young person. We have um, benign people like me and a nurse right in the forefront, and then we have other clinicians behind us, and then we have security behind that, and we have a plan to deal with the architectural issues of the hospital and all the potential areas where there can't be, could be conflict or running off, we think about it incredibly carefully, and we all know one another. It, I cannot imagine how it would be if we had some random kind of collection agency to come to the ward, and they've never been to hospital before in their lives, and they've got to get the child into an ambulance and take them you know, to, to a hospital in Essex. Louise is right that... It it has to be that the removal process could be done a lot better, for sure, because it's a completely unregulated, unstudied, unaudited process. It, it has to be possible that it's very, very upsetting for some young people, and it could have been done in their case a lot better. When it comes to openness, I mean, there, there are two kinds of openness. One is having the press in the courts, but the other is research. And we don't have openness about healthcare by having the press in the hospital. We have openness in healthcare by studying what we do and then publicizing that. And I think we need to study qualitatively, what is that, what did it feel like, but also quantitatively to get, you know, the, the ba- balanced numbers of people with different sorts of experiences and bring them together and study it. We also just need some, some counting. How many cases of this are there each year? And how do they turn out at one month, six months, five years? And without all of that, We're in the dark, but I don't think having the most honorable press in the courtroom, even if they were welcome, would help with that one iota. I think what they would lead to for most of us whose business is not the press is us thinking in our evidence, what's going to be cherry picked and quoted in the newspaper and what's going to be the consequence of that. And so I I think the answer is, yes, a lot more transparency, but transparency through really high quality research.
3: Perhaps with, um, you'd, you'd have to look very carefully about who was going to identify the cases that were looked at, because I suppose the problem with all research into any of these fields is it's, it's somewhat self-selecting who, who wants yes, to Yes,
0: absolutely. So people have to declare their allegiances and they have to declare how they identify their sample. You put an advert in the newspaper, were you unhappy about your removal? Well, you attract one kind of a sample. So, you know, that kind of transparency is what's needed. And, and then that's very routine throughout medicine. You know, why Why did you study this particular group? Because there were patients in my hospital. Well, are they remotely representative of patients around the land? No, we don't know the answer to that. So how do we, then we can't generalize that. So, you know, wh- what does high quality research do? It identifies the interests of the researchers. It audits their research design before they get to meet with a single client. And then it looks very carefully at the quality of the research. And there is, Louise is absolutely right, there's a great lack of this. I don't really understand why not. It ought to attract research funding and it ought to attract a lot of academic interest.
2: I think any anybody who's worked in this field knows that the, the choice of expert can have a huge bearing, not so much on the outcome as in the expert is favours one <clears throat> party or viewpoint or the other, but the quality of the expert evidence can speed up the process and lead to to fairer and better outcomes. Is is there enough help and information out there to enable people to make the right choices?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think if you're lucky enough to work in a large organisation, there is so much shared experience that. And if you're working in a, in a city, yes, I think there's a, 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 a big enough pool and enough information. I'm sure it's much more difficult if you're a sole practitioner working in a town. And then, you know, there are so many ways now to tap into information through the Internet, through social media that I, I think... There, there is the information out there, and I think it is accessible. It's just a bit more difficult if you're on your own.
3: And when you say expert, what type of expertise should we be looking for? Is that psychiatrist or psychotherapist? What, what, what is the first port of call?
1: There's a gold standard, but you'll, you'll remind me that it's expensive. But I think the gold standard is having a psychiatrist, having a psychologist, and having a therapist all working together, maybe even with an independent social worker. And I know that sounds like a lot, but I think each of those disciplines brings something to these very difficult high conflict cases. And again, I've seen such a combination of people work really well and work in a better way than lawyers and courts can. Um, but that is a gold standard. Remember, you were asking me how clients who obviously don't have the means, how they can do it. Remember, if a child is joined to the proceedings, a child is eligible for legal aid, and then the child's lawyer can instruct experts, albeit on different rates. And so there is that option as well to bear in mind. And obviously, in all these cases, joinder of the children should be considered at a very, very early stage, because it, although it involves the children... And if the children are older, that could be a disadvantage. It also balances the proceedings in a way and at least gives the chance of a more objective view rather than the stronger uh, views of the parents.
3: It can be hard to persuade courts, though, at a very early stage that, that that's the route you need to go down.
1: Yes, and we've all seen cases where it's done too late. 18 months into the proceedings, it's done afterwards when it's very obvious that it should have been done earlier. But you're right, it's a bold decision to make at the beginning because the natural inclination of the judge will be to try and keep the children out of it for obvious reasons because we all want to deny that it's a really difficult, high-conflict case and intractable. We all... Someone once said to me, you know, we all... Want to help and we all want to resolve it, and we all think we've got the answer, and we don't want to admit right at the beginning that actually it's the type of case which doesn't have any answer because that's very disempowering. Who wants to say that?
0: I think that the confidentiality doesn't help us, so called experts, either. These, you know, Alex is right, it's much better to work as part of a small team. In my NHS work, I'm able to discuss any case I want at length with uh, a group of very experienced colleagues within the multidisciplinary team. With this kind of work, I don't even know what I'm allowed to discuss with a fellow child psychiatrist who also does a lot of expert witness work. We are very, very wary of discussing any aspect of any content of any case with one another because we don't have to breach confidentiality and uh, it's very tricky. And so um, comparing notes, which professional people do all the time as part of normal practice, is harder under this uh, particular structure there's no there's no wise colleague to say i think you might be overemphasizing something do we we just have an ordinary clinical practice all the time it's it's a very odd it's a very odd thing and unlike pi work we don't have conferences where ideas are hammered out pi work you get five different people we talk stuff through really really carefully how do we know that this is a traumatic brain injury this kind of the child work we don't have those discussions. We did when I started out, but for reasons of confidentiality and perhaps cost, it's become forbidden.
2: That's probably more legal aid than lack, lack of legal aid, meaning there isn't the scope to, to instruct multiple experts.
0: Yeah, it is very helpful to be able to have a meeting with an ISW and talk some things through as part of the process.
3: OK, well, that's something for us all to bear in mind as well. Obviously, it's, it's rather upsetting to hear it's as stressful for the experts as it is for the rest right. of us and of course it's hugely stressful for the clients one thing that we are sometimes faced with is clients suggesting before the before any expert does or or any um judge suggests it that they should just walk away and would that be better for the children because you know, that would be um, that would at least stop the argument. And it's usually followed. And this is just my experience. It's usually followed with their belief that the child will then come and find them when they're 18 or 20 or in a position to, which, of course, I never know whether that really does happen or not. What do you say about that, Mark? Is that is that a step that you think sometimes parents can take in their children's interests?
0: Yes, but it's a dangerous step. I mean, certainly If one isn't being heard, whether one's a child psychiatrist or a solicitor or barrister, it tends to be a mistake to turn up the volume or to say the same thing over and over and over and over again. If one isn't being heard, then the thing that one has to take account of is that this way of communicating isn't working. No child likes being told that they have false consciousness, that their ideas are not their own, that they've been been pumped full of somebody else's children find this insulting, they tell me this. At the same time, sometimes children say, and then he, because it's usually a he, stopped even trying, which proved to me what I suspected all along that it was all for show and that he didn't really care in the first place. So the estranged parent walks a difficult line. But again, we don't have research on this, only anecdote, and I'd love to know the research. A number of parents have said to me that the child reached out to them after a considerable time had elapsed. Then the job of that parent is not to overreact, to you know, be quite understated, very welcoming of the child, but not remotely like, why didn't you do this before? Because it's such a major step for the child to do this and to do this without losing face, and they certainly don't want to start criticising the other parent. So one dad who negotiated this successfully His son emailed him and said, hey, dad, fancy lunch. After years, and it was three years of lunch before they ever talked about the thing. And I've known children say to their parent, I'm going to reestablish contact with you, but you cannot ask me any questions at all. So, you know, I do sometimes say to parents, try now, stop pressing, live a good and honorable life, a life that your child would be proud of if they knew about your life. And then live in hope that some... a romantic partner at university will say, yeah, story doesn't add up to me completely. And perhaps there's another version of it. Ver- but I don't know. I don't know. Because in a way, Louise is right that a lot of this is shrouded in secrecy, and not just secrecy imposed by the court, but it's an understudied area and we only have a very small number of personal accounts that a very few people publish because it's exquisitely private. People quite properly don't like to talk about this publicly. So we're a bit in the dark. I have only anecdotes, and some of the anecdotes is very moving. But I have to say to any parent, it's anecdote, and I'm not going to give you any prediction. Psychologically, letting go of anger and moving into acceptance of loss does create the opportunity of healing and maintaining the anger, literally and metaphorically, you know, bashing, bashing away, can often just carry on making things worse. Yeah, I've
1: had, I've had such situations. And I agree with what Mark said. I mean, I'm very cautious before endorsing that as an option, because I don't know the research, and I don't know how it'll work out. And obviously, it's a, a very brave and a hard step to take. But but I'll always say to the client: I mean, if the client reaches the point where it's causing him or her so much pain that they can't continue anymore, it normally comes from them. I don't tell them to ever walk away. But if if it comes from them, then I'll obviously be very sympathetic and say, well, if that's how you're feeling. I guess that's how they're feeling as well. And I guess that's how your children are feeling. And maybe you're right. And then I say to them, so long as you can look in the mirror and feel that you've made the right, as honorable, decent decision, yes. and you don't have any regrets about doing this in years to come, then you have my blessing. It's a very difficult decision, but only you can make it. Yeah, but obviously okay. I outline all the legal pitfalls in walking away.
0: But one can help the client add it up a bit because, you know, how can I know if it's best to walk away? I can't. But it's better to walk away than to behave badly, repeatedly. And it's better to walk away than to go engage in a war, which you're definitely going to lose. And it's better to walk away than to devote yourself to condemnation of the other parent for the rest of your life. In the abstract, is it better to walk away? Who knows? But it's better than something.
1: And sometimes the oxygen supply to the fire has to be turned off by somebody. I, I call this hydro litigation, Anita and Simon, and I really think that's apposite You know, one head is cut off, five spawned, another two heads cut off. It just keeps going. And there comes a point where people can't continue. So... Yes, I've seen people walk away. And I think in some situations, it's the right thing to do.
3: Is there a point, you know, when children reach a particular age or when litigation has been going for a certain amount of years that would point towards that being something clients could consider? Obviously, as you say, it's got to come from them um, and every situation's different.
1: The latter, I think.
0: There is children's biological drive to independence, uh, which kicks in later now than it used to. My maternal grandfather left home when he was 14, you know, to join light, to join the army. Now it seems to kick in later. Very few 16-year-olds are ready to leave home and go to university, but somehow magically... At 18, they are much more ready to be independent, and they're going to be more independent, and they're going to find their own way, and one hopes for a soft landing rather than some kind of explosion. But things, except for the child who is very, very codependent, something's likely to change in the fullness of time. Can't say when, but something's likely to change.
2: The two of you have vast experience between you dealing with these cases for an awful lot of our listeners, a lot of solicitors and barristers will deal with one or two of these cases a year, maybe less frequently than that. They're a small percentage of the overall work that a lot of people do, but they become a huge percentage of the stress (laughs) that the the, the practitioners uh, suffer. Do you have any experience for people who are finding their way through a A difficult parental uh, alienation or high conflict case?
0: You know, there's the economics of the practice of law, which I know nothing about, okay? The psychology of it, don't do only this, it's much too draining. Also, don't do just a tiny bit of it, because you will be so absorbed by it, and you won't have enough experience to know that um, although it sounds exquisitely personal what the client is saying to you actually it's part of a process that is common to all individuals if you're going to do it at all do enough that you are able to um, be very familiar with the life course of such cases but I wouldn't recommend doing only this kind of work and I would recommend um, having a wise a faintly contrarian person to bounce ideas off, not just someone who says you're amazing, but someone who actually challenges you in a way that works for both you and that person. We all need that, but that's why a work friend is the one who, who will not only encourage and praise, but also know how to challenge you. And that's what one needs.
1: Yeah, I would say definitely get support from someone in your work uh, to bounce ideas off because they're, they're really not the sort of cases to do on your own. I'd say don't take too many of them on at the same time because they can become overwhelming. And also keep your professional distance. So you ask for one tip, that's sort of three rolled into one.
2: Three
0: good ones, though. Thank you. Yeah. If it starts to feel like a life and death matter, the whole sanctity and validity of the state apparatus is going to be demonstrated to have worked or failed on this case then one's got a bit too involved and you know one's got to either you know what's mindfulness about it's about recognizing that and if one can't recognize that colleague or whether it's a spouse or a professional colleague someone to say hang on here one really needs that kind of a person. If everything that the court or the other side is doing is leading only to indignation and outrage, it's become very personal.
3: Thank you both for uh, coming on and sharing your insights with um, our listeners. Been a pleasure. Thank
1: you.
2: We're grateful to Louise Tickle of The Transparency Project for pointing out an
1: inaccuracy in the original recording, which has now been corrected.